It is another tremendous blessing we've each been given to assemble this afternoon and to do so in the peaceful and joyful confines of this particular place and building. The Word of God and the opportunity that's ours to assemble and to offer worship under the banner of doing so both in truth and in spirit is truly a gift. It certainly hopefully will help us as we move forward in our week. As was already announced twice today, the Bible Bowl is very, very near in our future this coming Saturday. And certainly here at the congregation, we wish to support our students who are participating in that. Let them know we appreciate the study that they have been undergoing for the last several weeks and months. It will indeed be a very impressive day for those able to assemble and to gather up there at the Hooper Eblin Center on Saturday to appreciate thousands of individuals gathered, hundreds of teams will be present, all answering questions on the book of 1 Samuel, the first 24 chapters. It is with that in mind that we come tonight to the very last lesson involving those chapters our youngsters are studying. As I noted, the first 24 chapters of that book will be the topic of their particular set of questions on Saturday. And this evening we come, in fact, to chapters 23 and 24 in our study. It might, in fact, be fair at this point to offer a bit of an apology I prepared the PowerPoint slides and the PowerPoint presentation for it, but I failed to copy it over to the jump drive, and so I have nothing to show in terms of the PowerPoint presentation this evening. My apologies for that. I'm hopeful with an open Bible that perhaps we can merely consider those two chapters and do so with a thought in mind of the lesson before us. At this point, might we at least take a quick observation of where we left our study last time. As we close the 22nd chapter, we had found that David was fleeing from Saul. And as he fled from him, he had already, in fact, arrived at Nob. And it was there that Saul learned of his presence. And oddly enough, Saul even, in fact, asked the priest to come. And ultimately, Saul had them all slain. He thought they were in conspiracy against him. And he thought that they had failed to honor him as appropriately as they should. And upon Doeg's recognition as to who they were, in fact, Doeg uh, accepted the command and actually slaughtered them. As the curtain closed on 1 Samuel chapter 22, we notice that David yet again was in a rather interesting position that he felt a bit of guilt as a result of his part in having those priests slain. That sense of guilt, it seems, was a part of what David felt as he authored some of the Psalms. It is somewhat interesting even this evening as chapter 23 opens before us. I would ask that we do something similar to what we have done each of the preceding weeks. Let us in fact overview a bit of the history of those two chapters and then devote the latter portion of our time this evening for a few extracted lessons based on the nature of those chapters. As chapter 23 opens, we find David again taking center stage. He does so as God directly gave him an order. He was told to go and save Keilah. Keilah was a little city located about eight miles northwest of the city of Bethel. It was a position, a location that was well known in that day and time. As David had received that order, what had prompted it was this. The Philistines had made an attack upon Keilah. And David, upon hearing of that attack, he had in fact inquired of God, Shall I go? And God in fact gave him order to go and save the city. 
when David shared that news with his men, those that were with him, they were fearful and they were affrighted because they already were fearful of Saul and his men. After all, David's troops numbered so far fewer than Saul's and thus they were already fearful for their lives. It is a bit interesting to notice that David again approached God and asked, Shall we go and shall we be victorious? And God assured him, You go and save Keilah, and I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. As David proceeded thus on his way with his men, they were in fact victorious over the Philistines. Keilah was saved. The people were very thankful. But that does in fact lead directly to the next matter in the chapter. Because Saul received word of to where David was. We already have an impression that Saul was this gentleman who pursued David with such hotness and such intensity. And once he had heard word that David was at Keilah, he already made preparation for himself to go there and capture David. And he was sure this time that things would be successful for him because Keilah was a city that was well-walled and had bars, and that is to say had gates. Saul felt sure that David would thus be locked in and would no longer be able to escape. Much to Saul's surprise, however, he failed one more time to capture David. We find that David also escaped the city, being prompted in his desire to do so, of course, understanding that Saul had an attempt upon his life. As you'll notice in verses 10 and following of 1 Samuel 23, it is a bit interesting that we notice that David not only escaped, he knew about Saul's intent. He knew of Saul's mischief. He knew that Saul wanted his life. As you'll notice in the verses that follow, God informed David about the nature that difficulty was going to come his way. It is also something of note that David at one point took an ephod, which was that which the high priest wore and those of the priestly order. David had that brought to him and he entered into prayer and he especially prayed these two things. He asked, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? God answered, Yes, they will. He also asked, Will Saul come? And God said, Yes, he will. This was an interesting time when, in fact, upon his prayer of earnestness to God, God revealed to him that there were some dangers coming his way. It might be fair for us to note an interesting point on that occasion. You and I should be earnest in prayer as well. In fact, on occasion, praying about the safety and security of ourselves and families. When trips are, been, are made, when ventures are undertaken, when adventures are those before us, we realize how needful it is always. Under the reality of James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, is it there not reminded of us? It's so easy to think, I'll go into a city and buy and sell and get gain, when in fact we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall in fact go into the city and do this or that. May we never leave God out of our plans. David, of course, kept God in his plans, and here God answered his prayers, informed him that Saul was coming, and that allowed David to escape Saul's grasp yet again. As he escaped that grasp, that brings us to the last half of 1 Samuel 23. Over the last half of that chapter, we find that, of course, David again flees from Saul. Having left Keilah, 
he comes to the next station, to the next location in that area. We find, in fact, that now he is a fugitive and he hides in the wilderness. No longer is he to be found in the confines of a city. He is in the wilderness of Ziph, Z-I-P-H. And in that wilderness, he is, of course, said to be in the strongholds of that location. We do observe very quickly that the Ziphites, which was a tribe of people who lived in that wilderness, they were a bit on the treacherous side, meaning that they understood of David's presence among them. In their understanding of that point, they, in fact, informed Saul as to where David was, and so now Saul could proceed to chase him yet further, and yet again even to this wilderness of Ziph. Saul, however, had understood already by this time that David had escaped his hand on many occasions, and so his questions for the Ziphites were a bit more clear. Namely, he said, You go back and you watch carefully where David hides in that wilderness. You watch his paths, you watch his goings out and his comings in, and you come back and tell me so that I can carefully cover all the bases, if you please, and be sure and certain to capture David. As the Ziphites returned, we remember that the chapter finally closes in the following way. Saul and his men had in fact made an attempt to come, and David and his men had now made their way into the wilderness of Maon, M-A-O-N. While there, Saul received some word. The word he received was a somewhat shocking matter. The Philistines have attacked the land. You and your troops need, in fact, to leave chasing David and come and preserve and protect the entire land for the Philistines are upon us. Saul had to thus leave chasing David for at least a while and go back and take care of defending the land against the Philistines. For that reason, this particular rock where Saul received this message is called the Rock of Escape. Thus, David and his men were allowed to escape yet again because Saul and his pursuers had to go back and protect the land from the Philistines. As chapter number 24 opens, we find the very last chapter that our youngsters, our students are being asked to study. And in this chapter, it opens as well as closes in a way that at least is in some sense familiar. But let's paint a bit of a portrait, a mural if you will, of the matters to be found in this 24th chapter of 1 Samuel. The chapter opens as follows. Saul had taken care of the Philistines and now he turned his attention back to David. And so he begins pursuing him yet again. This time we learn so quickly that David and his men were in this wilderness of Engedi, spelled E-N-G-E-D-I. Here's yet another wilderness. All these wildernesses were very near to each other. They were in close proximity in the middle section to southern part of the land of Palestine. In this wilderness, though, we readily appreciate that Saul and his men had come, and as they were chasing David... Saul, in fact, had needs that he was in position to satisfy. And so in verses 2 and 3, he entered into a cave to take care of the needs of his physical person and physical body. Much, however, to what he did not know, David and his men were hiding in the far distant recesses of that very same cave. I would ask you to ponder just a moment about the incredible nature of that event. 
David and his men were hiding in this cave. And here was Saul, just happens, if you will, going into this cave to take care of the needs of the body. Inasmuch, however, as Saul did not know David was in there, but David, of course, knew that Saul had entered. In quietness, David and his men remained exactly silent. Saul took care of the matters before him. As he left the cave, however, we quickly discern the following. All the while that Saul had been in the cave, David had opportunity not only to wound him or injure him, but even to take his life. But he did not do so. In fact, those men with David urged him, This is the moment that you've been waiting for. This is the moment that God has promised you. This is the time when you, in fact, can remove from this earth the one who has been attempting to take your life. David seemed not to give the slightest interest to carrying that out, but rather he simply cut the corner off of Saul's robe while Saul was unaware. After Saul left the cave, David stepped out and gathered Saul's attention, and David entered into conversation with him. That conversation took an interesting twist and an interesting turn, for David spoke first. He said, Look, Saul, I have been close enough. I have the very corner of the garment that you now have on. I could have taken your life, but I did not. Isn't it interesting, Saul, and I'm paraphrasing, that you have sought my life all over the countryside. You have thought in me treachery. You have considered me to be interested in taking your life. You have in fact perceived that I in evilness was desirous of killing you, when all the while nothing like that is true. In fact, when I had the opportunity a moment ago and even my men urged me to take it, I refused because I honored you as the Lord's anointed. Finally, Saul speaks. He says, you, David, have been more righteous than I. You, David, have in fact given me good, whereas I gave you evil. You have rewarded me good for evil. Saul begins to cry. Saul literally begins to weep over the character of the earnestness and sincerity and goodness which David had bestowed upon him. And as chapter number 24 closes, Saul has one final request of David. One final petition that he wanted to ask. He said, I know that God has given you to be the next king. I know that the kingdom in fact is yours. Please remember me and my family when you become king and do not cut us off completely. That request, of course, you and I will only ask. Did that come to pass when David ascended the throne as we read in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. At this particular moment, with the curtain closing on chapter 24, why don't we revisit those two chapters and ask what might be some thoughts that would prompt our thinking about even our life today. We noticed one was the earnestness of David's prayer and God's answer of it. But what might be some additional lessons even besides that one? I might ask that we revisit the closing verses of chapter 23. It was there that particular scene called again the rock of escape. I would invite you to consider what took place yet again on that occasion. The providential hand of God has been mightily observed in 1 Samuel, hasn't it? All of these times that David has escaped, and there have been many... And yet the God of heaven has prompted those escapes, allowed them to take place, and even directed the occurrence of them. 
Was it not also there in 1 Samuel 23? Saul and his men were closing in on David. They were now very near in as much as that wilderness of Maon and the wilderness of Ziph were so far related in terms of closeness to each other. However, it was just at that time that the Philistines entered into the land and attacked it, and Saul had to leave the chasing of David and actually defend the country from the Philistines. It might be well for us to notice the rock of escape and how that the lesson in that might well be stated as follows. Saul had chased David. He had left behind the palace, left behind the central intelligence of the nation, left behind the forthrightness of protecting the people, and gave in to the personal and rather deceitful pursuit of David. There was, quite frankly, better things that Saul needed to be doing. He was the king, and he needed to be watching the people over whom he was entrusted to be their protector. He had far better things than to be chasing David all around the countryside. David was no threat to him. David had never attempted to take his life, and David was not one that would stand in position to do that. David, in fact, had played the harp to soothe that distressing spirit within him, 1 Samuel 16, 16. David, in fact, was the one who had defeated Goliath for him when he was too afraid to do it himself. David was the one who, in fact, had humbly submitted to all the desires of Saul while serving at the palace. David was no personal threat. And yet Saul had invested his efforts and those of his troops pursuing this one who was no threat to him. He needed to be protecting the country from the real enemy, which was the Philistines. And he needed to be protecting the country from those that were legitimate threats. The lesson in that for us might be this. Isn't it easy for us, too, to give our attention often to what is not the chief concern, what is not the primary obstacle? And yet we turn our attention to filling our life with that which is often unimportant insignificant, and rather trivial, quite frankly. Maybe this rock of escape reminds us that there are some chief priorities in life, and it is to them that we should give our earnest attention in every regard. Might at this point we recall that little book that near, is near the close of the Old Testament, that book of Haggai. Only two chapters in that book, but what a refreshing lesson we find within it. To basically highlight the scene, doesn't it go like this? The people of God had returned from their captivity in Babylon. But as they returned, they first had begun to work on the tabernacle, the temple, I should say. And as they began that particular rebuilding project, we noticed that the following thing happened. They worked feverishly. They worked with great intensity and laid the foundation of the temple. But then the work stopped. The work stopped. For 16 years they did nothing. No further work was done. No walls were erected. No top was put on it. Nothing beyond the foundation was laid. Finally, we noticed that God, in fact, raised up two prophets. One of them was Zechariah, the other Haggai, and charged them to stand before the people and remind them of their failure. Haggai said something like this, Haggai 1 verse 6, Consider your ways. You have in fact used your wages, but you've put them in a bag full of holes. 
You've been busy, all right, but you've built your own houses. You've used those fine pieces of material that should have been used for the temple. You've put them in your houses, but you've let my house, God says, lay dormant. Where has your priority been? You've taken care of yourself, but you've ignored my temple. You've ignored my work. You haven't raised again this structure in which proper worship can take place. For that reason, Haggai said, consider your ways. In the very next chapter, God through Haggai finally said, if you will get back to work and if you will rebuild this temple, I will bless you so marvelously that this temple that you're now building will be finer than the one Solomon had even constructed before. Question for them was, where was your priority? They had misplaced them. Cannot the same thing occur in your life and in mine today? We chase after everything except what's most important. In the final analysis, when this life is all over, all these other things will matter precious little. Our standing with God will ultimately be all that matters. A poem that we've often noticed before, at least various statements and words in it, it might be time to reflect upon it yet again, for it ties in so beautifully to the matter before us. A poem again whose author I do not know. And in fact, even its title is one of which I'm not aware. But the statements of it are so very forthright. Out of this world I'm unable to take. Things of silver and gold that I make. All that I cherish and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge come in when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find? All that I've worked for, I've left behind. Wouldn't it be tragic to have worked but have left it all behind? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasury is there will your heart be also. The famous words of Matthew 6, verses 20 and 21. Thus, the rock of escape reminds us about Saul's misplaced priorities, and perhaps you and I can be guilty of the very same matter. But maybe a second lesson also comes before us as we think about chapter 24. This time, isn't it remarkable to think somewhat more interestingly about the fact that David did spare Saul's life? Picture the scene for just a moment of what took place as David there was in the cave eyeing Saul. He had his chance to kill him. He had his chance to inflict, to inflict mortal wounds and damage upon him. This was his opportunity to finally get rid of the one who had been chasing him ever since chapter 16. And yet, he did not take advantage of the opportunity. Twice in that chapter... David says, He is the Lord's anointed. He still is the king, and it is not my prerogative yet. God will bring me to the kingship when it's His proper timetable and when things are in His proper realization. That time had not yet come. In fact, it will not be till chapter 31 that Saul dies, and it will not be until 2 Samuel then when David takes over the kingship. For now... When David spared Saul, isn't that a testimony to how it's so possible to look upon one's enemies 
and to view them differently than how they view us. It is one of the challenging things in life, isn't it? When there's someone who doesn't wish the best for you, they seem not to like you, they seem to wish nothing to do with you. In fact, if they have the chance, they will induce something to harm you. They'll take the promotion from you. They'll stab you in the back. They'll talk evil behind your back. They'll gossip about you. They seem to almost take pleasure in it. What it is they have against you, sometimes you have not the slightest idea. Here was a time when there was one who had in fact cast a spear twice at David. No doubt, David knew how Saul felt about him. But he did not return evil for evil, did he? We notice he returned good for evil. David spared Saul's life. As you think about the way in which you and I sometimes are called upon to react to those who wish us that which is less than the best, it is in fact something that is very challenging, isn't it? It's often no trouble at all to work with those who wish you the best. They're there to encourage you, to support you, to in fact aid you in your efforts and work. When it gets so challenging is when there's somebody in the group who really wishes you evil, who really wants you to fail, and then they will go out of the way to help make sure that happens. Isn't it hard to wish for them the best? Isn't it hard to pray for them sometimes? Isn't it challenging to strive to go back and do good for them despite the fact they did evil to you? We find that David was a man after God's own heart at this time in his life. We had read that back in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14. Do we not find something amazing? God has been that way for us, hasn't He? A pitiful and woeful sinner such as I, and yet God sent His Son to die for me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those penetrating thoughts of John 3 verse 16. We read in Romans 5 8, But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that God in fact did good to us even when we had done evil to Him. Guilty of sin, guilty of failure, guilty of shortcoming, Guilty of various and sundry things that were opposed to His law and His will. No wonder we see something so special about David. In a day and in a time known for its ruthlessness, known for its cruelty, known for its harshness, and yet David seemed to have risen above the group. With an opportunity to do evil, he had done good instead. With an opportunity to take Saul's life, he had, he had in fact refused that opportunity. In this cave, who would have accused David of anything other than what he perhaps should have done? Saul's your enemy, David. Why not kill him? I would, in fact, invite you to reflect on one of the statements in the law of Moses. Is it not there? It had said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now Saul had tried to take David's life not once but twice. Who could have accused David of impropriety if he had attempted to do the same to Saul? But yet, David did not behave that way. David seemed to rather appreciate a higher ethic than that. An ethic that is, of course, stated in many ways in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 7, verse number 12, 
we find on that occasion that Jesus, the very Son of God, said, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's not a matter of doing to others what they have done to you. It's doing to others what you wish and what you prefer they had done to you. That is the higher ethic, and that's the one the Lord issued and set forth in Matthew 7, verse 12, isn't it? Isn't that the one that we see Jesus exemplifying? Imagine the Son of God hanging on a cross. There were those who had spat upon Him, reviled Him, ridiculed Him, scourged Him and beat Him. There were those who had even begged upon Him, Come down from the cross if you be the Son of God. Save thyself and us. One of those thieves had said, But yet Jesus was able nonetheless to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. That took an incredible degree of love for every one of them, didn't it? A degree of love that is just different than simply doing evil for evil. That degree of love requires the earnest understanding of the fact that they are immortal spirits and that they're going to stand before the God of heaven in judgment. Wasn't it also Paul who exemplified a similar ethic? In Acts, the 21st chapter, we remember that there were a group of Jews who so hated Paul that they wanted to kill him. They, in fact, had bound themselves with an oath that they would neither eat nor drink till Paul was dead. Can you imagine a group of people who hated you so much that they were going to fast until you died? That's a great degree of hatred, isn't it? And yet we notice that as chapter 22 of the book of Acts opens, after being rescued from the throes and throngs of that very same group of people, Paul turned to his rescuers and said, Let me talk to them. And when Paul addressed them, he didn't accuse them. He didn't try to insult them or demean them. He said, Let me tell you about Christ Jesus. And let me tell you about the gospel and how you need to hear it. Paul in love, despite the fact they had tried to kill him, he turned and preached the gospel to them, hoping they'd respond to it, hoping that they would in fact realize the same faith that he had now understood. Paul too, you see, had a desire not to do evil for evil, but to return good for evil. And isn't it true that you and I are called upon in many ways and in many times to do the same? In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read on that occasion that what good is it? In fact, what thankworthiness is it if we do good for good? When someone does us good, if we do them good in return, although that's nothing improper, the inspired writer said, isn't it much more thankworthy when you return good for evil? When someone out of the evilness of their heart has acted toward in evilness toward us, what a fantastic thing and how Christ-like it is when we in response do good for them. That's what's so challenging, isn't it? Isn't that challenge something that you and I face from time to time? May we always be strong enough to carry it out. And may we be earnest enough to always desire it, understanding that doing evil for evil is not the way of God. Doing good for evil is what He would have us understand. That lesson that we have just studied this evening brings to us the closing part of the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel. One last time Saul had made a request of David, Remember me and don't cut off my seed and my family.
It is with that that we might wonder, what happened in the remaining chapters of 1 Samuel? I understand our students will not be responsible for studying those chapters, but how did this book end? Did Saul finally do good things to David, or did he continue to chase him, pursue him, and do bad things to him? How did David react? I wonder if we might not do well to reflect on the last chapters of this book just to draw the book to a proper close. And we may in fact do that in some succeeding lessons throughout the further parts of this year. It is, though, the case tonight as we close this lesson that we might extend an invitation in the following way. We have seen that David was in hot pursuit as Saul chased him, and he had to flee for his life time and again. May you and I in wisdom always flee to a safe refuge from sin. Sin, of course, is the pursuant in your life and in mine. The devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. As that devil is walking about in that fashion, has he captured you? Has he captured me? Has he reached the point of having a strong toehold in your life or in mine? If so, then things are amiss. Things are not as they ought to be. The gospel plan of salvation is so clearly stated for your benefit and mine. Lost and undone, we have no hope, Ephesians 2 verse 12. However, being members of the kingdom of God, all is well with us because that kingdom is the kingdom of the saved, Ephesians 5 23. Tonight, if you have never obeyed in sweetness the gospel plan of salvation, realize that it is a moment that will take some courage. It will take your behalf to confess the nature of sin to others, but realize that means if confession emanates into something so special, God's forgiveness upon your baptism. If we could help you tonight realize that plan of salvation proceeds like this, you need to hear the blessed words of the Savior. Believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess Jesus' name as a Savior of your body, the Savior of your life, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could assist you in that way tonight, it would be our privilege. If you have become a member of that body, that body of Christ, Acts 2.47, but you have not been faithful to that calling, you've wandered aside like that prodigal son. At some point you made a decision and you now virtually are in the pig pen of life. Why not come back to your first love? The God of heaven hasn't given up on you. Have you given up on yourself? Why not come back to your first love? Revelation 2 verse 5. Repent and upon your confession of those sins, He has promised to forgive them upon our prayer on your behalf. We'd be delighted to pray on your behalf this very night if that would be the need in your life. Let David be a good example of having a sincere, earnest, and peaceful heart. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, won't you let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.